Good morning. I like seeing my little granddaughter wave at me this morning. That means a lot to me. Okay, guys, did you, what'd you do on Friday for your wives? Did you get them a Valentine? Did you love on them? Do anything special? Tom, as you're looking down, did you do something? Okay. All right. You're Timothy. All right. All you guys, I'm proud of you. You know, I don't know if, it, Tim, when we were putting together part of the, the preaching plan, if you planned on putting Valentine's Day and marriage. I, well, well, we'll just go with that. You know, um, I don't feel like I should be the one to sit in front of you to preach on marriage, but the Lord had a different idea. And I want to thank you, Marilyn. I love you with the love of the Lord. That was beautiful this morning. I love that song. Did a good job. Um, children are asked some questions about marriage. I love what children have to say at times. And they ask questions about marriage and dating, and here's some of their answers. First question was, how do you decide whom to marry? Alan, who's 10 years old, says you've got to find somebody who likes the same stuff. Like if you like sports, she should like it too, and she should keep the chips and dip coming. Kristen, age 10, to the same question says, no person really decides before they grow up who they're going to marry. God decides it all way before, and you get to find out later who you're stuck with. So she had a good foundation, at least, there. Next question, how can a stranger tell if two people are married? And Derek, age 8, says, you might have to guess based on whether they seem to be yelling at the same kids. <laughs> Little Lori, 8 years old, was asked, what do you think your mom and dad have in common? Lori says, both don't want any more kids. <laughs> question is it better to be single or married and Anita age nine says it's better for girls to be single but not for boys boys need someone to clean up after them how would you make a marriage work they asked Ricky who was 10 years old and he says tell your wife that she looks pretty even she looks like a truck <laughs> boy kids can get away with things that adults can't but you know we live in a time where marriage is kind of a confusing topic you wouldn't think that it would be uh, it's confusing in what it's worth and what makes it work. Politicians debate the definition. Dr. Phil talks about it on his show a lot, marriage. Uh, families struggle with the fallout of failed marriages. And long-term marriages are heard of less and less. I'm very, very blessed that the Lord allowed me to witness some marriages that were centered around God and they were long. I don't know that everyone's had that, and I'm grateful for that. Um, I've watched marriages... Uh, in, in my front row of my home growing up, you know, where there were tough times, and I watched mom and dad love each other. Um, I never knew what the centrality really was as a young child, but as an adult, I know what the nucleus of that marriage was. Um, whether you're newly engaged or have been married for many, many years, God left us a very spirit-filled, inspired instruction manual, which you all hopefully have one with you today and that we must refer to it consistently about topics, and today we're going to talk about marriage. Now, I want to quickly acknowledge this because this was on my heart when I was putting the sermon together this week. And I want you to know I'm very sensitive to the fact that some of you continue, continue this journey in life without the one that you love. I had a front row seat in my, watching my dad live nine years after my mom passed. 
And I know uh, what that's like. But I want you to know this morning that uh, may the Spirit of God just comfort you and remind you that you have a lot of godly wisdom that you need to impart upon us younger folks. Frankly, I believe we all desperately needed this study in Genesis that we've been through, the beginning to remind us of who he is, where it all began, and the future hope we have in Jesus Christ. We need the reminder of our text. It reveals the Bible's original blueprint for marriage. And this is an important passage because of where it's found in the scriptures, opening pages that outline the foundation of all life. Now this morning we're going to go back to chapter 2 of Genesis, and I'll be reading verses 18 through 24. Again, that's Genesis 2, 18 through 24. And it reads, Then the Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper who's just right for him. So the Lord God formed from the ground all the wild animals and the birds of the skies, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And the man chose a name for each one. He gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals. But still, there was no helper just right for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while the man slept, the Lord God took out of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, and he brought her to the man. At last, the man exclaimed, This one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. This, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. May God add his blessing to this portion of his word. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you uh, that we've heard your word this morning. Father, I just pray that you'll just um, uh, translate it into what you want us to hear this morning, Father. Uh, Lord, this message belongs to you. Um, Father, I'm just so thankful for who you are. And I just pray that you'll be with us this coming few minutes as we proclaim your word, Father. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. This morning, I want to use the Bible to point out three foundational truths that we glean from God's Word. It's a prescription, so to speak. I always say when I set up here, it's like a prescription. I guess because I have a lot of prescriptions, I have to go get filled, and it's supposed to do something. Well, this prescription will do something. Uh, but before I do, I want to note a couple of things from this Genesis text that I think uh, is kind of like a prelude before a wedding. First of all, the text tells us God designed marriage to do what? To meet our core need for what? Companionship. You know, there's so many songs. I, I See, I, you know, I go back into the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. There's songs. Everybody's lonely through life, you know. I pick three songs that I think epitomize loneliness as well as anything. The first one's by Hank Williams. Anybody know what that might be? I'm so lonesome I could cry, Tom. Thank you. Eric Carmen had one, too. Anybody know what Eric sang about? All by myself. Yeah. Last but not least, this will take you back to the 70s. Three Dog Nights sang one. Anybody know what that might be? I'm so lonely. Or, no, one is the loneliest number. <laughs> okay, that's enough of that. <clears throat> God creates Adam, breathes life into him, and puts him in the Garden of Eden to live. Then he says, it's not good for man to be alone. 
These two words, not good, and Brother Tim pointed this out to me this week when we were talking, are important to note because there were six times in the creation account that after every major event, God looks at what he has done and said, what? It is good. But now after man's creation, after, being, uh, after making a being in his own image, ironically at this, the highest point in creation, for the first time God says that something is not good. It wasn't the man that he made that was not good. The man, the man has a core need for a companion, and God saw that up front. So it so moves God to solve the problem by creating a helper. Now, contrary to what little Alan, 10-year-old Alan, said, I don't believe the, the wives are intended to, to be uh, hired servants to bring us chips and dip, keep the endless um, dip going. But... Uh, um, that's not the idea at all. In Psalms 46, 1, you don't have to turn to it. The same Hebrew word is used to describe God himself. God is our refuge and strength and every present help in time of trouble. This Hebrew word for helper doesn't mean a wife who's subservient to the husband. It literally means someone who supplies what is lacking in another person. In other words, God created Eve to do what Adam couldn't do by himself. Now, it's not that the man is better than the woman. With Aaliyah, I always tell her boys are better than girls. And I, I say it over and over, and I can get her to say it too. She'll go, no, girls are better than boys. I said, no, boys are better than girls. I'll get her to say it, but that's a side note. She gets so mad at me. Um, that's why God designed the marriage relationship. Husband and wife both need each other. I know I did we are relational beings and need a companionship as much as the air that we breathe. You know, if you think about Tom Hanks' movie, when he was stranded on that island after that uh, plane crash, you know, he, he had to talk to somebody. He needed a companion. And what do you find a companion in? It was, a, I think, a soccer ball, a soccer ball, and called him Wilson. Yeah, there you go, Jake. He'd talk to Wilson. He'd cry with Wilson. He'd chastise Wilson. And he and Wilson would take breaks every now and then. So, you know, they didn't know when they did that movie that they were just actually pronouncing what God says. We need companionship. You know, um, I remember as a small child, we'd go visit my grandmother, who was a widow down in Virginia, or Tennessee, this particular one. And she, she lived in a little tiny trailer in the middle of a tobacco field, you know. Uh, and she would set that little vanity, and she'd put her makeup on and stuff, and she'd talk to herself like nobody's business. And, you know, when I was a little boy, I thought, she's not her in a fruitcake. I mean, I really did. I thought, what is she doing, you know? And, she, and she'd argue, and her head would be going back and forth, and Mom would just be like, let it go. So, but now, you know, I'm getting closer to 60, and I understand what it's all about now. <laughs> we need that one person to whom we always go to first to tell everything. The second thing I want to point out to you, everything else is a poor substitute for a human companion. Remember, after saying it was not good for man to be alone, before he made Eve, God put Adam to work naming the animals. I would have liked that job. It took some creativity, <laughs> you know, and I think God was doing, you know, I, what I think is I think God was doing something with Adam. It was kind of like a little term project for zoology, and he was saying, okay, Mr. and Mrs. Aardvark, Mr. and Mrs. Llama, Mr. and Mrs. Pig, Mr. and Mrs. whatever. And then he got to the point, probably when he was naming those things, he started to feel pretty lonely. 
because he was looking at the pears. He began to hunger for a partner of his own. Someone who would be bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh and as if to say, yes, you understand, you are ready. At the height of his loneliness, God did something. He put Adam to sleep, first anesthetic, and made woman from one of the ribs. And he woke up in verse 22, and it says God brought her to man. What's the first part of every major wedding? Once you have the preliminaries out of the way, once the candle's lit and the mothers and the grandmothers are seated and the bridesmaids and the flower girls have made their appearance, what's next? Well, I have an parenthesis here because there's a couple of things I got to say. I went to one wedding that I didn't know what was going to happen. It was right in this sanctuary when the lights went out. You know about this, Adam and Marie, when the lights were out, the electricity was out. This place was full. It was full. There was people over there all over and... There was no electricity. It was summertime, too. It wasn't in the middle of winter. It has a beautiful wedding, too. It was very beautiful. Tim Dillingham, I thought of another wedding. Didn't you officiate one on flood day down at the church, when, and then they got flooded into the church downtown? What kind of a start is that for a marriage? You and Kim were right there in the middle of it. Well, the doors open for most weddings, all of them, that beautiful bride comes down the aisle. You know, that custom originated here in Genesis. God was the first father of the bride, and he presented her to Adam because he knew nothing else in creation would meet man's need for companionship. He needed a friend. He needed a helper, a being more like himself. Eve was not identical to Adam, but different so as to complement him and vice versa. From this text in Genesis, we learn that God planned the human heart for love, marriage, and companionship. Marriage is one of his greatest gifts to us. Think of it. The only thing man brought out of the Garden of Eden was what? There was a man, woman, and marriage. Those three things. Tim and I talk a lot, and I told him that this really, you know, I never really thought about it that much. And what does Satan try to attack? He tries to attack the identity of what a man is, what a woman is, and what is marriage. If he can distort that, those are the original things that God gave us out of the garden. If he can mess that all up, he, he's got something going. And do we see that all around us? We see it everywhere. As someone once put it, marriage in a fallen world is truly holy matrimony, and the only touch of paradise we'll ever know beside heaven. With this in mind, I want to suggest three things. This is not a complicated sermon, but I want to suggest three things that will enable us as spouses to fully appreciate the wonderful gift of God. These three principles from Scripture will help us build the right kind of marriage, the kind God has intended from the beginning. And whether we've been married a year, we're engaged 20, 50, 60, I was hoping we'd have other people. Marilyn, Larry, how long has it been? How many years, Larry? You looked at, yeah, okay, or a few, a lot of them, right? We need this message. I need the reminder. I needed the reminder this week of this message. That's why God stuck my nose right in the middle of the Bible. Well, firstly, spouses, a man and woman, must embrace a godly commitment. That's the first thing, godly commitment. And when I say a godly commitment, I mean that both spouses enter the marriage with a mindset that theirs will be a permanent relationship that this is for keeps, that, that 
their marriage is one they both will work on and benefit from literally till death do they part. That's the kind of commitment God intends in marriage. And one of the greatest causes, I'm sorry to say, of divorce is people just kind of convince themselves when they go into marriage, you know, we've got an out. There's, you know, there's another way out. You know, I might become interested in something else. They walk the aisles of the church and they think, you know, this is really a pretty wedding. I love a wedding. And then when the honeymoon's over, they don't love the commitment that they didn't make. More and more, this is being interpreted as till disagreement to us part or till other interests do us part. Thanks to this mindset change, the average length of a marriage is 7.2 years. I think it's probably a little less than that, but here's something's mind-boggling. The amount of people avoiding the commitment of marriage and living together um, without making the commitment is sin, first of all, and secondly, there's more fallout of those relationships. It's less than seven years. It's lucky to be a year. That godly commitment is something. And I'm not saying just a commitment, a commitment that is based on God's word and who God is. A great example here, now I'm going to give you a little, a little trivia here, a great example of how short marriages are comes from our celebrities. I picked three to tell you about this morning. I want to lighten it up a little bit here. First one, Bradley Cooper and Jennifer Esposito. Their marriage lasts four months. In Esposito's 2014 book, Jennifer's Way, she wrote, he has a funny, smart, cocky, arrogant, and master, he's a master manipulator. I didn't necessarily find him that attractive, but I figured that I could enjoy his sense of humor and nonsense for a while. That's why she married Bradley. It lasted four months, though. Okay, we're going back a few years. Greg and Cher Allman. Anybody remember Greg and Cher? The hand, my, handwriting must have been on the wall for this ill-fated couple. Cher married musician Greg Allman of the Allman Brothers. It was just after three days of her divorce with her first husband. Everybody remember who her first husband was? Sonny Bono. There you go. Only nine days later, Cher asked to dissolve the marriage. She was over it. The pair had an on-off-again relationship, and they even had a son together, Elijah Blue. That's very 70s right there, <laughs> Elijah Blue. Okay, here's the last and least. And everybody know Britney Spears and Jason Allen Alexander. Now, Jason Allen Alexander is a no-namer. He was just a little feller who grew up in Louisiana with Brittany. Their wedding and divorce happened within 55 hours in what is probably one of the most famous quickie weddings and divorces ever. Singer Brittany Spears elopes with her childhood friend Jason Allen Alexander on January 3rd in a Las Vegas wedding chapel. That's where we all wanted to start right there. Let's do something wild and crazy. Let's go get married just for the heck of it. Alexander said in an interview after the wedding. Well, that lasted 55 hours or less. Perhaps these couples frequented the little jewelry store that Charles Swindle talks about where they went rent wedding rings. That would make more sense than having to buy one. If marriage is intended to be the blessing God intended, this attitude must stop. Because no relationship can last if spouses believe they have an out. 
that there's always the option of quitting when things get tough because things do get tough. When two sinners live together under the same roof, <laughs> there's going to be conflict. If you want to see that, come over to 3236 Spruce Street in Columbus, Indiana. That's where Dave and Julie live. There's conflict. I, that is the love of my life, and she's not in here, is she? She's the love of my life, and um, I just, you know, there is going to be conflict. <laughs> a judge was interviewing a woman regarding her pending divorce and asked, what are the grounds for your divorce? And she replied, well, about four acres and a nice little home in the middle of the property with a stream running by. No, he said, I mean, what is the foundation of this case? Well, it's made out of concrete, brick, and mortar, she responded. I mean, he continued, what are your relations like? Well, I have an aunt and an uncle living here in town, and so do my husband's parents. And he said, do you, do you have a real grudge? And she goes, no, she replied. We have a two-car carport and have never really needed one. Oh, please, he tried. He says, is there any infidelity in your marriage? Well, yes, both my son and daughter both have stereo sets. We don't necessarily like the music, but the answer to your question is yes. Ma'am, does your husband ever beat you? Yes, she responded about twice a week. He gets up earlier than I do. Finally, in frustration, the judge asked, Lady, what, why do you want a divorce? Oh, I don't want a divorce, she replied. I never wanted a divorce. My husband does. He said he can't communicate with me. There you go. There's going to be trying times in marriages. Julie and I, this is our 40th year this year, which I look back and I can't believe that. I really can't believe it. Um, but I'm going to say something this morning. There's going to, while there's trying times, we must never let one seven-letter word ever cross our lips. And Tammy Wynette sang about it, D-I-V-O-R-C-E. You remember that song? My uncle would play it on his eight-track tape, and I'd listen to it, and little Joey, they didn't want Joey to know it, and I was like, why didn't Joey need to know about the divorce? You know, but it's not good. It's toxic to a relationship. That's why Tammy didn't want Joey to hear about it. It's toxic. We don't Never bank on an out. If we have a godly foundation for our marriage, never use that D word. That's just, that, I just want to say that this morning. The scripture we read a moment ago from Genesis, which says that in marriage, husband and wife are united to one another. And the Hebrew here for united means to glue to or to cling to in a lasting sense. A literal translation would be this, meld two separate identities together to form a permanent bond. This is the way marriage was intended to work here from Genesis. God designed it to be a lifelong union between one man and one woman, and if the marriage is to succeed, and bride and grooms must embrace the principle from the beginning. Now, for Steve Kaufman, I know you're not here, but I put a little history in here. During England's darkest days in the 1930s, Prime Minister Winston Churchill, which I really liked him, held the country together. You know, there were voices during that time that were shouting, you know, surrender. Um, there were bombs. There were devastated uh, buildings. Bridges fell. But Prime Minister Churchill refused to budge from what he stood for. Never once did he consider surrendering. He, um, 
to quote him, he says, wars are not won by evacuations. And he was right. Surrendering is not an option. If you plan to win a war and the same thing is true, if you plan to succeed in a uh, wet marriage, you got to stick with it. Remember, Jesus said that in marriage, God binds two people together so that they can become one. What God has joined together, none should separate, Matthew 19, 6. God did not issue this command to restrict us or to make us miserable. He didn't. It is just as the inventor of marriage, he knows that the real love and genuine relational fulfillment exist only in conditions where there's long-term trust and commitment. Now, number two, spouses must learn to express a godly love. There's a very stark difference between God's caliber of love for us and the typical love that sinful humans express to each other. Human love is a selfish love, so to speak. That sounds horrible to say, and Hallmark doesn't really print that in their cards. But it's oriented towards the lover, the one doing the loving. It's a love that is based on a feeling, a feeling that is fueled by whether or not the person is physically attractive, has a good personality. This human love is focused around what the other person does for us. Jesus described this brand of love in Luke 6. He did. And he said that sinners love those who love him. Love them, excuse me, and do good towards those who do good to them. The problem with the human caliber of love is that it's not nearly strong enough to withstand the storms that plague a marriage. It's just not. This is a selfish love, and a selfish love is a very weak and vulnerable love. It's a love that endures only as long as it needs, its needs are met. Ann Landers once wrote a, received a letter from a follower, and my mom used to read Dear Abby and Ann Landers, so, you know, I, I was always, mom would sit and read the paper to me and read these letters. She was a godly woman, but she still liked Dear Abby. She said the husband had spent, um, this is about a couple who had been married for more than 50 years. He said the husband had spent the last eight years selflessly caring for his wife, who had um, Alzheimer's. He cooked for her and fed her every bite. He bathed her and dressed her every day all of these years. They had no other family. Listen to the letter she wrote depicting the faith, this faithful husband. I cannot describe the tenderness and love that this man shows for his wife. She's unable to recognize anyone, including him. But I observed him when I parked my car beside his the other day. He sat in his old pickup truck for a few minutes, and before he got out, he combed what little hair he had left, straightened the threadbare collar of his shirt, and looked in the mirror for a final check before going to see his wife. It was as if he was courting her. They have been partners all these years and have seen other under all, uh, have seen each other under all types of circumstances, yet he carefully groomed himself before he called on his wife, who wouldn't even know him at that time. This is an example of love and commitment the world needs today, and I agree with that. Every human wants to be loved. You know, if I could talk to Ann, I'd go to God's Word and I don't know how we can get out of uh, talking about marriage without going to 1 Corinthians 13. This is a 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. 
And if I have the gift of prophecy and I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I don't gain anything. Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It does not boast. It's not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. Love is not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrongs. It keeps no records of wrongs. It keeps no records of wrongs. Love does not not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see him face to face. Now I know in part that I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three things remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. To build a marriage right, spouses have to rely on a power that's higher than they, and it has to be a godly power. The greatest single cause of difficulty in the home is a lack of spiritual concern. This is in, I I don't even want to classify this as somebody who goes to church or doesn't go to church, but just having an awareness of God. We leave God out of our marriages. We'll put him into this situation, this situation, this but we failed to put him in a marriage at times. I remember in 1980, uh, when Julie and I uh, decided to get married, <clears throat> Reverend J.V. Davis wanted to counsel us, and I don't remember much of what was said. I remember two books he gave us to read, and I read mine and Julie read hers, but one thing I do remember that he said that stuck with me, and it came to me this week. J.V. said that it takes three to make a marriage work. And that third person was God, Christ. Now you would have thought that I would have heard that and I would have remembered that all the days of my life and put Christ as that third person, but I didn't. Here's a stark truth for you today. Ponder on it. The first husband and wife didn't start to have problems problems until they moved that's when the problem started. If marriage is to be all God calls it and wants it to be, both husband and wife must want to stay close to God. They need each other in a growing relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. I'm not suggesting for a moment that people outside the family of God can't have happy marriages. Not at all. But what I am suggesting is that a Christ-centered marriage relationship is what the Creator intended for us. You might compare it to the difference between a black and white TV and a plasma HD TV. 
old transistor radio. Anybody have one of the old transistors? I bought one at a flea market. I love that little thing. Everybody thinks I'm nuts, but I play it. Versus a surround sound stereo. Couples with an undeveloped, underdeveloped spiritual life are like an orchestra without a string section. They make music, but it really lacks the fullness that God wanted you to hear. The plain truth is Christian spouses are able to enjoy a greater depth in marriage than spouses who do not. Jesus personally, if they don't know Jesus personally, they have nothing. That third person is the greatest counselor you'll ever find. He's a great counselor, and he has that blueprint, that manual right next to you that is spirit-filled that will get you through and give you the answer to any dilemma that you face. Always will. He'll never, ever fail you. I'm getting ready to close. I give three points this message. It's really simple. First, couples must embrace a godly commitment. And how do you do that? You've got to stay in God's word. You've got to stay in it to remind you of what that commitment is. You've got to pray together. Not only do you need to pray together, you need to pray for each other. Be actively plugged into a body of believers. Can't do it on your own. I know a lot of people think they can, but you need that body, you need the body of Christ. And then you need to watch and listen to the godly advice <clears throat> of those who have lived and loved longer than you. Spouses must, number two, this recapping, spouses need to learn to express a godly love. 1 Corinthians 13. That's the godly love. I said it holds no records or wrongs three times because so many marriages can't break free from the past. Don't hold those records. God tells us not to. Thirdly, to build a marriage right, spouses must really rely on a godly power. In 40 years uh, of marriage, I can only speak because uh, that's the only front row seat I have is my marriage um, I would be ashamed probably to think of the how many years we spent not putting God in the middle of our marriage and I can tell you some real um, dilemmas that we've been faced with when God's not been in the middle but you know what he used those things to bring us together and if you're in the middle of adversity in your relationship or your marriage today this word is for all of us but this is that reminder this is God saying I got the blueprint here you're going to be okay I've given you the resources. You don't have to buy uh, anything online. I've given it to you right here. It's free. And if you accept Christ, this is where we start the journey together. And then you can start it together as a husband and wife. You know, God's ways are higher than my ways. And he has some really strange arithmetic the way he does. And I wasn't really good at math in school. But in his word, he says, you must become empty to be filled. You must become the least to be great. And you must die to live. See, this is all in God's economy. And when it comes to marriage, one plus one equals one. I never got past Algebra true 2 in high school. I really was not a good student in high school. And some of you might remember A.J. McQueen, the guidance counselor. He had a toupee, a white toupee. And he would try to help you figure out what you were going to do in your life. And A.J. could never get past the point. He said, you're pegged for sales. You're going to be a salesman. 
because my grades weren't good. But I think he thought I had a personality, so you could probably sell cars. But, you know, in Genesis 2.24, it describes a man leaves his father and mother and is united with his wife, and they become one flesh. You know what? Because God adds and multiplies, it confounds the world by showing that one plus one and one is possible. I'm going to close this morning with a scripture. How does God do the impossible? Because Jesus says he can. In Luke 18, 27, it says that things impossible with men are possible with God. Emptiness being filled to overflowing, servants becoming great leaders, dead people being resurrected to new life. And lastly, one man and one woman becoming one flesh. God specializes in the impossible. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I am more than grateful for the message that you put before me this week, Lord, and I pray as the words proclaim, Father, that that um, your word, uh, I know it's faithful and it does not return void. I just pray that you speak to us this morning, and Lord, that it um, it spurs us to trust you and to follow you. And Lord, thank you for all the resources you've given us. Thank you for Jesus. And Lord, if for someone here this morning that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, Father, Lord, you came for us. Lord, you created us, and you, you know us inside and out intimately. There's nothing you don't know about us. Lord, I just pray that you'll just fill our hearts, and Lord, we love you. And Lord, as we, with this song we're about to sing, Father, um, there's an open altar here, Father. If anyone wants to come, Lord, I just pray that we'll pray. And this is a new beginning, Lord. I love you because you just give us new beginnings. And Lord, you don't hold that record wrong. May we exemplify and be the same as you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.